Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Be ready to turn. We are going to look at several different passages today as we think about Christ's resurrection and what that means for us and how we can apply this and how we should apply this to our lives. I suppose where we need to start today as we think about Christ's resurrection on this Resurrection Sunday is we need to talk about the importance of Christ's resurrection. Uh, Sadly, this very essential, important doctrine has been maligned and attacked throughout the centuries. And I want us to think about the importance of Christ's resurrection in four ways. Number one, the importance of Christ's resurrection to Christ's person. There is great significance to his very person. For example, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then you know what that makes him? That makes him a liar. Because Jesus Christ himself predicted that he would rise from the grave. You can read that in the Bible, in the Gospels. And so if he didn't actually do what he said he was going to do, then that makes him a liar. However, the good news is, of course, the resurrection is true. And and, and in the process, it's actually authenticating Jesus Christ as the true prophet and the Son of God. He is God. He arose again. Let's think about the importance in relation to Christ's work. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then he would not be alive today doing his post-resurrection ministries. For example, you say, well, what is Christ doing today for me? Well, if you're a believer, the Bible says that Christ is in heaven and he is your great high priest. He is your intercessor. He is your advocate before the Father. And those of us who are a part of the church, we need to recognize that he is the head of the church, of his body. Let's think about the importance to the gospel. Of course, the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians, if you look here in uh, 1 Corinthians, it talks about the gospel. It says in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We'll stop there. We'll read some more of this later on. But the Bible says that the Gospel is of first importance. It's very important. This gospel means the good news. And so without the resurrection, there is no gospel because you cannot take either Christ's death out of the picture or his resurrection. If you do, you have no gospel. So without the resurrection, there's no gospel. You say, well, what is the gospel? Well, you just read the gospel, okay? It is that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried, and that he rose again. That's a good picture, or a summation, if you will, of the gospel. Let's think of the importance in relation to Christians. If Christ did not rise, then I would have to ask, why are you sitting here? (laughs) What is the point in coming to church if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians here, 
that our witness would be false if Christ did not rise. Our faith would be without meaning, no meaningful content to the faith if Christ did not resurrect. Our prospects for the future would be hopeless. Look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did Uh, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Of course, Christ did rise, which, of course, gives us hope. It gives us meaning. It gives us a a true witness. It gives a faith that is not futile. So these are at least four aspects of the importance of Christ's resurrection that we can think about, and I'm sure there's more you could come up with. But let's move on to the nature of Christ's resurrection. The nature of Christ's resurrection, sadly, is, uh, as I said, is, is greatly maligned, greatly attacked. The liberals have, boy, they've, they've written volumes attacking this particular doctrine, trying to show that it, it's not true. The first aspect we need to think about in relation to Christ, uh, the, I should say the nature of Christ's resurrection, is we need to understand that Christ actually died. Now, I know some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, isn't that obvious? Well, I, I got news for you. It's not obvious to a lot of people today. Christ actually died. And I say that because there are some people who actually believe that after they took Christ off the cross and put him in that tomb, that, that somehow, uh, because he didn't actually die, maybe he fainted somehow, that when he was put into the cold, or that cool air in the tomb, that he was revived. And as a result of being revived, he woke up, because he wasn't actually dead, and then he was able to walk out of the tomb. These are the sort of attacks that liberals do. Attacking the Bible and and the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Of course, this theory is false for many reasons. A simple reading of your Bible, taking it literally and believing what it says, will clearly show that Christ actually died. Let me just throw out a few, okay? If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll, you can see these. First of all, the, the Bible says that Christ appeared to the disciples. And when he did, he appeared as not someone who was weak, half dead. Like somebody who's just gone through a crucifixion. That's not how he appeared to them. In fact, he appeared to them as a conquering, triumphant victor over death and the grave. He could never have made the impressions that he did upon the disciples if if he had presented some picture of some sick, half-dead man who'd, who'd just gone through a crucifixion. Of course, that's not how he presented himself. Uh, Another reason is that the Roman soldiers pronounced Christ dead. 
I think those guys understood what it was like to crucify someone. They'd done it many times, and they knew that uh, it was important to get their job right. They had to make sure the guy was dead, or the woman. But uh, how, how do we know? How do we know? Well, it, it, we just read in John chapter 19 that they broke the legs of the men who were next to Jesus, but they did not break Jesus' legs. Now, why? Why did they leave Jesus? Well, of course they were fulfilling Scripture, but the simple, literal reason is Jesus was already dead. They didn't need to break the dead guy's legs. He was already dead. The other guys weren't. That's why they broke their legs. So the Roman soldiers themselves pronounced Christ dead. Number three, we learn from John, again from John chapter 19 that when the soldiers pierced the side of Christ, the Bible says that blood and water came forth from Jesus Christ's body. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I've read doctor's statements on this, which says that that is clearly showing that Jesus was dead. That's a condition that shows the death. Another reason is Joseph of Arimathea went and asked permission to bury the body of Christ. He, he knew that Jesus was dead. He understood that his death had been pronounced, so he actually went and did something that was probably uncomfortable for him, going and asking for the body of a dead man. Well, how did Pilate respond? Well, Pilate responded when he heard that Christ had died. Pilate was, was a bit surprised, quite frankly. I mean, because often crucifixions could take up to three, even maybe even four days if the poor guy lived that long. Pilate was surprised to hear that Christ was already dead, and so he, he called for the centurion and, and asked him if Christ was dead, and of course the centurion said, yes, he is dead. That's what Mark 15 says, and so then he gave permission for Jesus uh, to be get, his body to be given to Joseph to be buried. And then in Mark chapter 16, we see the women, they're, they're actually coming, and what are they doing? The, the, the women are coming with spices that were very costly, but were used in the burial process. And that was used for the burying of, of dead bodies. Not, it wasn't for people who were alive. They wouldn't do that to people who were alive. It was for dead bodies. So there, there's many proofs, if you will, many things in a simple reading of the scriptures showing that Christ actually died. Well, number two, as we think about the nature of Christ's resurrection, we need to also understand that Christ's body was actually raised from the dead. It was his body that was raised. Now, I'll talk about the significance of that in a moment, but, but let's just think about this. The resurrection of Christ, you need to understand this, is not a spiritual resurrection. And nor were his appearances to his disciples just spiritual manifestations. His body was there. Instead, what we see in Scripture is not something spiritual, but he's appearing to his disciples in bodily form. They weren't seeing a ghost or some phantom or some spirit or something like that. They saw Christ's body. The body that was actually laid in Joseph's tomb came forth from that tomb on that first Easter morning. It was not a ghost. It was not a spirit or some phantom. You say, well, how, how can we actually be sure of that? Does the scripture show us that? 
let me give you some reasons why we can actually believe that Jesus' body came forth from that tomb. Number one is the tomb was empty. Okay? The Bible tells us the tomb was empty. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. By the way, it's not just one person saying the tomb was empty. There are multiple witnesses. We, we read about some of those witnesses in John 19 and 20. But there are many, many witnesses who saw Christ after his resurrection. All right, anyway, Matthew 28, look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, this is the angel speaking here. And the angel says, he is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Yes, he was there, but he's not there anymore. Nobody saw a body there. It was empty, except for the cloth. So this truth is testified to, as I said, by many witnesses. By the way, not just the disciples, not just friends of Jesus, Do you remember who else testified to the truth that the tomb was empty? The very enemies of Jesus even testified to that truth. How do we account for the empty tomb? Well, some people say that the body of Jesus was stolen. Okay. But that can't be true because you remember what happened? Uh, They put guards at the tomb, remember? These guards were supposed to guard the body, the dead body of Jesus Christ. Did they do a very good job of that? <laughs> no, of course not. Jesus, Jesus was, he was gone. The tomb was empty. These guys knew that their, their life was on the line here. They could have been killed for not fulfilling their duty. But instead, what happened? The Bible says they're actually paid to tell a false story. Oh, his body was stolen. <laughs> so these guys, they understood what had happened. They knew the tomb was empty. But they're just making up a false story. And normally, guards would never allow a prisoner to be stolen. They would put their life on the line, because if they didn't do their duty, they could be dead. And it's interesting that we, we find the condition of, those, of the linen shows a, a, another truth that Christ's body was not stolen. Think about it. When thieves, if you've ever had a thief break in your house, or steal something of your your possessions thieves don't normally uh go about their business in an in an orderly organized neat fashion do they they come in and they usually trash the place don't they (laughs) right i mean they're just throwing stuff everywhere they're looking for for anything of any value to them and everything else you know they're dumping it throwing it right if if they come in if these if they were tomb robbers so to speak why would they bother taking these linen cloths and neatly folding them up and placing them down? They wouldn't do that. That's not what thieves do. They don't leave things in perfect order. But in this case, we see the linen is in perfect order. Well, we also have the testimony of angels to the fact that Christ had really risen. Look at Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Mark 16. And by the way, 
good angels don't lie. <laughs> okay? So as you keep in mind what this angel says, this is a good angel, it's not a demon here. All right? He's not lying. And look what this angel says in Mark 16, verse 6. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So the tomb's empty, which is, which is proof to the, the fact that Christ's body was actually gone. It raised from the dead, if you will. Number two is that nobody can steal Christ's soul. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of silly, but uh, it's kind of obvious, though, isn't it? If Christ did not have a body, then why did the officers say that they were afraid that his disciples would come by night and steal him away? You don't steal souls or spirits. And so there's no way they could have stolen his soul. So it's kind of silly. What are they stealing? What are they talking about? They're talking about his body being stolen. Right? So even even the very enemies of Christ are, are giving us proof to a bodily resurrection. And number three. Those who saw Christ after the resurrection recognized him as having that same body as he had before his death, except for one difference. You remember, the Bible says Christ still had scars. Thomas came to Jesus. Jesus showed him the scars in his wrist, his side, his feet. Those scars, by the way, are still there. And they will be there for all eternity as reminders to us of Christ's work for us. So you can read in places, uh, for example, turn over to Luke chapter 24. You can read about this truth in Luke 24. Luke 24, we will start reading in verse 37. 37, Luke 24, verse 37. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. Why is that? Well, if you back up, you find Jesus coming into the room. Verse 38 says, he said to them, why are you troubled and and why do you... And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet... That it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Those are the words of Christ. He's saying that he has flesh and bones. He's saying he has a body and people were seeing that body. Number four, the Apostle Paul believed in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Just read 1 Corinthians 15, for example. And by the way, uh, many... Many Christians believe that Paul saw Jesus Christ. Yes, he saw him on the road to Damascus. Jesus talked to him. Remember, he had that conversation. But, but many people believe that Paul spent three years with Jesus Christ in the wilderness, studying and learning from Jesus. He saw Jesus. So Paul obviously believed he was willing to put everything on the line for the risen Christ. He preached and taught about him. He was willing to die for that faith. Number five, the Apostle Peter also believed in the bodily resurrection 
of Christ. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter comes after James. Keep going toward the end of your Bible, you'll find it. James and then First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now jump down to verse 21. Verse 21, it says in verse 21, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter believed. Look at verse, or chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21 says... There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Apostle Peter believed that Jesus had died and rose again. Number six, the appearances of Christ prove a literal, physical resurrection. Christ, as he even said himself, could be seen, he could be touched, he could be handled. We see even after the resurrection, he's eating food, he's drinking, and he's doing these sort of things, and he probably did it on purpose, even in the presence of people. By the way, these are all things that bodies do. Okay. Bodies are touched. Bodies are seen. Bodies eat. Bodies drink. Okay. We see Jesus doing all those things because he had a body. Number seven, after his resurrection, Christ gave testimony to his bodily resurrection. Look at Revelation chapter 1, for example. Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> And I'll remind you that this is the revelation of who? The full title of the last book in your Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And look what Jesus says in Revelation 1, verse 18. He says in verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. My friends, Jesus is alive. He's in heaven today. So we see Jesus' body was actually raised from the dead. But as we continue to think about the nature of Christ's resurrection, we also need to understand that Christ's body was more than a mere natural body. In other words, what I'm saying is, his body wasn't exactly the same after his resurrection as it was before the resurrection. His body after was different than your body. For example, we, we see in, don't turn there, but in John chapter 20, uh, we, we read earlier, he's walking through doors or walls. He, he's coming into rooms that have locked doors. And of course, the disciples were, 
you know, fearful, and that's why Jesus says, be at peace. That's not what natural bodies do unless you're, you know, incredibly strong. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be walking through doors and walls without breaking them down. But in that case, of course, the Bible says the door was still locked. But nevertheless, Jesus comes into the room. That's not a mere natural body doing that. That's different. And in fact, we also see that Christ's resurrection body was immortal. It's immortal. In other words, it can't die. In fact, uh, Christ's current body will never die again because it's immortal. And in fact, even here in Revelation 1, verse 18, notice what Jesus says here. He says, not only is he the one who lives and was dead, but he says, I am alive for how long? What does it say there? Forevermore. He's not ever going to die again. The work has been accomplished. Well, let's move on and think about the evidences for Christ's resurrection. There's many evidences, despite the fact that uh, the liberals love to attack this doctrine. Uh, Let's think about some of these. Number one, the Bible says that Christ appeared to at least 500 people or witnesses after his resurrection. Uh, There's... Every one of the Gospels talks about them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, Paul, Paul mentions it in, in 1 Corinthians 15. The book of Acts talks about it. And, and so that's, we're not going to look at all those. Let's just look at the one the, the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, this is the great chapter on the resurrection. And uh, we want to think about this uh, uh, just for a moment here. We're just going to take a few of these verses, okay? 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, let's start reading in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. We see at least 500 people saw Jesus Christ after his resurrection. The Bible talks about only having two witnesses to prove something. <laughs> okay, Now here we got way more than two witnesses. We got, we got over 500 witnesses. And, and notice 500 at one time. It's not one at a time. These, these people were clearly awake. They were not on drugs. They weren't, they, they, they weren't you know, intoxicated or, you know, they were all there at the same time. Seeing Jesus Christ. Well, the second evidence for Christ's resurrection is theologians have have mentioned uh, in in the process of my reading, I've learned that there's all of these effects that we see as a result of the resurrection that have to have a cause. Many effects, of course, there has to be a cause. Cause and effect is going on here. Number one is the empty tomb. The empty tomb was an effect. What caused the empty tomb, though? 
what caused the tomb to be empty? Well, I hope you believe the tomb was empty because Christ had risen. The cause is Christ had risen. That's why you have the effect of an empty tomb. Okay, but some would say, well, that's not enough by itself. All right, well, I'm going to give you several to think about here, okay? Several effects that have to have a cause, and I hope you can see they all have the same cause, which is the resurrection of Christ. Number two, the second effect is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's always existed, but His ministry changed after the resurrection. So what caused the events of the day of Pentecost? Okay, Christ arose. The year when Christ rose, Pentecost saw the descent of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what, what was going on there? All of that was happening just as Christ said it would. He said it is important for him to go so that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would come. Why did the Holy Spirit come? Because Christ arose. The Apostle Peter attributed the coming of the Spirit to the fact that the risen Christ sent the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit is the effect. The cause is the resurrection of Christ. We can read about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we have some of the last words of Jesus Christ before he ascended to heaven. Look what Jesus says in verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's what Jesus said before he left the earth. (coughs) Now look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 33. Chapter 2, verse 33, it says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. That's Peter's explanation in his sermon for what was going on. So the coming of the Spirit was an effect of the resurrection. Number three, worship on the Lord's day is a result of the resurrection. You, say, you ask the question, what caused the day of worship to change? Because remember, one of the Ten Commandments, I think, what is it, the fourth one or, or third? I can't remember now. But anyway, one of the Ten Commandments is you're to keep the Sabbath day holy. It's the fourth one? Thank you. That was, their, that was their day of worship, right? The day of worship was the Sabbath starting Friday night going to Saturday night, according to the Jewish calendar. What caused the day of worship to change? Well, most of the first Christians were Jews. So for them to actually change their day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday is incredibly significant. What changed that? I mean, these people were accustomed to worshiping on the Sabbath, but yet suddenly and then pretty much uniformly, they began to worship on Sunday, though that was just an ordinary work day for them. Why'd they do that? It's because they wanted to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it took place on Sunday. They changed their day of worship to Sunday, which is the effect, because the cause is the resurrection of Christ. 
So every time we come on Sunday, it's really a celebration of the resurrection. So we have an empty tomb, we got the coming of the Holy Spirit, we got worship on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, and now also the, the Christian church. Think about it. The Christian church is an effect of the resurrection. The church, of course, is a grand and noble institution. Jesus Christ being the head of this institution. What would this world be? Think about it. What would this world be today without the church? Oh, man. Uh, that, that, that's a mind-boggling, sad thought, really. But where did this institution come from? It really is an effect. But we've got to ask the question, what's the cause of that effect? Well, when Christ appeared to discourage disciples, what did he do? He revived their faith. They, they were being quite cowardly, weren't they? Weren't really doing much. Uh, they, they were afraid. But after the resurrection and Christ revived their faith, we see these men believing in Jesus Christ. They went forth. They proclaimed a risen Lord. They preached the story of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming. And as a result of that, what happened? We have people believing in this teaching, and they started gathering together. They started studying the scriptures. They believed it. They prayed together. They worshiped Christ together, and we, we see them extending Christ's kingdom together. And that's how the church came into existence. Its cause, though, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is a result of Christ. Well, the New Testament is also a result, if you will, an effect. The New Testament itself is an effect. If Christ had remained buried in a tomb, you today would not have the New Testament. It would be pointless. We, today, but today we have the story of his life, his, his death, his burial, all of that. But if he had remained buried, you wouldn't have from Matthew to Revelation in your Bible. The New Testament is an effect of Christ's resurrection. These men actually believed in what Christ said and what happened to him. That he did die, but yes, he rose again. So what is the doctrinal significance of the resurrection, you might ask? What is the doctrinal significance? It has great significance for you and me, even today. Number one, Christ's resurrection ensures regeneration for believers. My friend, listen closely. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you have never put your faith in Christ alone, the Bible says you're not a believer. Okay, Believers are ones who believe in Christ's person and his work. If you've never done that, the Bible says you're not regenerated, and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. My friend, you are on your way to hell. And you need Christ. But for those of us who are believers, Christ's resurrection ensures regeneration. You say, what's regeneration? Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, where he, he creates a new life in a sinful person, and, and only, by the way, only in the person who repents and comes to believe in Christ. I want you to see what First Peter says here. I want you to see the connection here between this. 
the, the resurrection of Christ and regeneration of believers. Look at 1 Peter. It's on the screen here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's regenerated. To what? A living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what gives you the hope? Where, where does the hope of being born again and regenerated come from? It comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this verse, Peter is explicitly connecting together Christ's resurrection with a Christian's regeneration or, or his, his or her new birth. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a new quality of life in a human body. This new human body is perfectly suited for fellowship and obedience to God forever. In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life just like his. However, we do not receive all of that new resurrection life yet. (laughs) You're not exactly like Jesus yet, are you? Okay. If any of you have fooled yourself into thinking that somehow, please come and talk to me, okay? You're not like Jesus yet, but John said, one day you will see him, and you will be made like him. One day, not yet. Our bodies remain as they were, still subject to aging and to death, okay? If you don't believe that, just go look at your high school photos, all right? Those of you who are no longer in high school, you're going to see, oh, wow, okay, I have changed, all right? Look in a mirror, all right? You're changing. It's through his resurrection, Christ earned for us the new kind of life that we received when we're born again. I want you to see what Paul says in Ephesians 2 here. He says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. So Christ's resurrection ensures Regeneration. Number two, Christ's resurrection ensures justification. You say, okay, that's, that's a big theological word. What does that mean? Well, look at the first part of it. It says just. Just. It's a legal declaration where God the Father declares you to no longer be guilty, but you now have his son's righteousness. And so with that in mind, I want you to Look what Romans 4, verse 25 says here on the screen. It says, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? What does it say? He was raised for our justification. So, in other words, if Christ had never come up out of the tomb, God would have never declared you to not be guilty, and he would have never declared you to have his son's righteousness. When Christ was raised from the dead, what's God doing here? God was showing his approval of his son's work of redemption. By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was, in effect, saying, he's approving of Christ's work. He approved of it. What he had done was, was a good thing. It appeased his wrath. So Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. Because the work was finished. There's no penalty left to pay for sin. No more wrath of God to bear. No more liability to punishment. God's wrath was absorbed in His Son. All 
had been completely paid for. There's no more guilt remaining. And God the Father can now look at us as just as if we had never sinned. That's an amazing thought. So in the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you've done, and you find favor in my sight. So this explains how Paul can say that Christ was raised for our justification. If God raises us up with him, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval is also his declaration of approval of us. My friends, do you understand if God never approved of Christ's person and work, you would never be approved. But praise God, we see he approved and we see it in the resurrection. All right, number three, Christ's resurrection ensures that believers will receive perfect resurrection bodies. And the good news is those resurrected bodies will never die. They'll be immortal. You'll never die. You'll never get old. You're not going to have those high school photos in heaven. <laughs> you're not, you're, you're not going to have the, the wall looking, saying, well, man, here's how I looked one million years ago. Wow, haven't I changed? <laughs> oh, 100 billion years ago, this is how I looked. No, you're not going to have those things. You're going to look the same. Look what 1 Corinthians 6 says. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Now, the most extensive discussion, of course, uh, that is connecting the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our own is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me encourage you to use this day wisely by reading and meditating and studying on 1 Corinthians 15. It's a great passage. But in that, in that chapter, Paul says that Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first, he's the best, <laughs> he's the most important of anybody who has ever been resurrected. And because of that, we have the hope of ourselves of also being resurrected. In calling Christ the firstfruits here, Paul's using an, an agricultural metaphor, if you will. What is he doing here? He's indicating that we will be like Christ. Christ is the first fruits, and so we will be like him in this aspect. Number four, Christ's resurrection assures believers of an interceding high priest. Because Christ arose, we have a high priest who is interceding in heaven. Look what Romans chapter 8 says. Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's the us? The us is believers. It's the church, specifically there, the church in Rome. So salvation, by the way, is, was not completed at the cross. That's not a full gospel. In fact, if you have a Savior dying on a cross and being buried and staying there, that's bad news. That's not good news. What needs to happen is there still needs to be a daily forgiveness going on. My friend, do you realize you're still a sinner? Okay. Positionally, you're in Christ if you're a Christian. 
But daily we continue to sin. Daily that sin needs to be forgiven. The Bible talks about Satan as, as the, uh, the accuser of the brethren. He is coming to, to God with accusations against you. And those need to be answered. There needs to be an answer for those accusations. When Satan comes and says, hey, look at so-and-so, he sinned. He, she sinned. Yes, she did. Yes, he did. You sinned. You probably sin every day of your life. Those accusations need to be taken care of. But the good news is we have a high priest, the Bible says, who prays, and, and he's doing it constantly for us, that our faith will not fail. You have an advocate. You have a, a defense attorney, if you want to look at it that way. Well, there's some great application we need to think about as we wrap this up. How does the, the resurrection apply for my life today? A great question. It has great significance. It, has, it, it is applicable. So let's think about this. After really a long discussion in 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to see how the Apostle Paul wraps up the whole chapter with some application based on the truth of Christ's resurrection. Look, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? What is it there for? Well, he's just been talking about the resurrection, okay? So here's what Paul says, based on the truth of the resurrection, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So here's the first application for you today for tomorrow, for next week, for next year, until you are glorified, here's the application for you. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. That's what it says. You should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. You say, well, what is the Lord's work? I mean, it says to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But what is the Lord's work? Well, part of that work would include evangelism. And by the way, I'm referring to personal evangelism. I hope you don't think of evangelism as just some, some church program that's done on some certain time of the week between the hours of 7 at night and 10 p.m. No, that's, that's not just evangelism, okay? Evangelism is what happens throughout your life. It should be a way of living. When you have divine appointments given to you by God, your responsibility is to take that divine appointment, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But my friend, evangelism is only the beginning of the work of the Lord. Because Matthew 28 says you are to go and make disciples. The command there is make disciples, not to evangelize. Well, how do you make disciples? Well... <laughs> Read verse 20, Matthew 28, 20. Part of making disciples is you teach converts the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to make disciples of Christ. That is part of the work of the Lord. So my friend, let me ask you, how are you doing in that department? Are you making disciples? Sadly, I have to look around and say, 
I would like to do far better in that area. And you could probably say the same thing, because I'm looking, as I look around, over the last five years, we don't have many disciples to talk about, which is sad. And my friend, you need to pray that God would give you divine appointments. Pray that God would give you zeal for Him to be a faithful witness. Pray that you would know Jesus Christ, so you could talk accurately about Him. Pray that you, God would give you that zeal and the passion so you'd be passionate about Jesus Christ. If you love Him, you're going to talk about Him. Number two. Not only should we continue steadfastly in the Lord's work, but number two, we should focus on our future heavenly reward. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we should focus on our future heavenly reward. Paul saw the resurrection as a time when all of the struggles of this life will be repaid. Do you believe that? My friend, what we need to do is we need to set our minds on heaven. Set our affections on heaven. Look what Colossians 3 says, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, my friend, is that true of you? Have you been raised with Christ? That's a rhetorical question, okay? You could literally say, if you're a believer, since you have been raised with Christ, here's what you must do. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So my friend, we should focus our our minds, our hearts, our affections on a future heavenly reward. Something that's going to last for eternity. But what do we do, though? <laughs> is that the reality of our lives? Sadly, most of the time, it's probably not, is it? Uh, too often, our affections are set on things here on the earth, aren't they? And it, it often shows in how we use God's money. It shows how we use our time. It shows in what we talk about. It shows in what we think about. You say, well, is my affection in heaven? Then just judge it by those criteria. How do you spend God's money? How do you spend God's time? How do you spend God's thoughts? Where is your love? Where is your affection? It should be in heaven. Number three, because Christ was raised from the dead, we should stop yielding to sin in our lives. Stop yielding to sin. My friend, you don't have to say yes to sin. Okay? You will be tempted. Okay, that's, that's just the norm. You've you got to get used to that. Okay, it's not a sin to be tempted, but when you yield to the temptation, then it becomes a sin. Romans says we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that the reality of your life? Do you consider yourself dead to sin? If, if you don't, then you need to seriously consider if you're even a Christian. Okay? If, if your habitual way of living, John says, is to be habitually sinning, John says, not me, John says, the Bible says, then you're not a Christian. You are in darkness. You're not in the light. Okay? Christians don't habitually 
continually doing sins. Okay? Christians are known for repenting of their sin and forsaking it and confessing it. So the Bible says in Romans, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? It's as a result of the, the resurrection. Christ conquered death and sin. And, and right after the Bible says that, I want you to look at these next two verses. Because right after that, in verse 12, Romans 6, verse 12, it says this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for for what? Not for evil, not for wickedness, not for sin. No, it says your members are to be presented to God as instruments for righteousness. My friend, do not yield your, uh, to sin. Do not yield to sin. Christ conquered sin. He conquered the works of the devil. And so you can no longer honestly say the devil made you do it. You can't say, well, I had no choice. Wrong. If you're a believer, you have a new master. Don't serve the old master. He pays terrible wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Those are horrible wages. You have a new master now. His name's Jesus Christ. He loves you. And yes, we're going to continue to fail him. I do every day of my life. I'm not like Christ yet. I look forward to the day when I will be. But until that day, remember 1 John 1, 9. That you serve a faithful and just God who is... And because he is faithful and just, he is not only willing, but he is able to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So those evil thoughts that you had today, he's able to cleanse you of that. That wicked deed you did yesterday, he is, he is faithful and just and he wants to forgive you. My friend, run to him. Run to him. Beg, plead for mercy and grace. And when you sin, do as Proverbs says. The just man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Okay? Say, renew your heart with God and say, Father, forgive me, I have sinned against you. But thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty of sin. Thank you that there is forgiveness of sin. Father, help me not to do that again. Don't yield to that sin. You have a new master if you're a believer. So the resurrection has great application for our lives today. We see that we should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. We should focus on our future heavenly reward, and we should stop yielding to sin in our lives. My friend, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? In a visible, bodily resurrection? And that today he is still alive. He is immortal. He will never die again. And that he is at the Father's right hand. He is your intercessor. He is your great high priest. Do you believe that? Then let that truth make the difference in your life as it did with the disciples. Don't cower away living as if there is no hope. Do what the disciples did and turn the world right side up. The resurrection made the difference in their life.
and it should in ours.